What's up, everybody? This is the TMI Podcast, and today we have Isaac. And Josh. And Jada. And I have a question for Jada today. What do you advocate for? Okay, what do I advocate for? So, I'm assuming you're referring to my nonprofit. So that's the one that's on my Instagram. That's my nonprofit. It's called The Uncomfortable Project, uh, or UP for short. And then the little slogan is Nowhere to Go But Up. Um, and so I advocate specifically for sexual, not for sexual abuse. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Against sexual abuse. <laughs> Great start, Jamie. Um, but yeah, so I advocate against that. And specifically, there are a lot of nonprofits that target like sexual abuse itself and sexual violence. Um, but we work specifically on education. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily deal with survivors themselves we're like a funnel so like we know like the main people like rain and star and then like so if a survivor does come to us then we'll like point them to where to go but the main thing we do is go into schools um we've actually done it with the church before um and done like a pilot program there um that's called start the conversation and basically it's supposed to start the conversation around like topics like sexual abuse um, because I find that they're really hard to combat in, in silence, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, like when they're under the rug. So, yeah. yeah. Where do you think we're the most lacking as a society as far as that goes? Is it a specific oh, realm of sexual <laughs> abuse? You know, is it like, because a lot of people don't even think about the fact that there is sexual abuse within marriage. You know, there's still such a thing yeah. as consent within marriage. Or is it in, in what we, we classify as you know, sexual violence or rape or whatever, are we too, are we not broad enough in what we're including, you know, where are we falling short as a category, as a society, do you think? Is it like implicit attitudes towards women? Is it, what do you, what do you think? What do you think? What do I think? Let me just, <laughs> let me solve the world right now. <laughs> um, all of the above, like that right uh-huh. option, I... I'm very hesitant to answer a question like that because when when someone says this is what the problem is, Mm -hmm. then you take away from all of the other problems that are that are very Mm -hmm. prevalent. And so I I wouldn't I don't know if I necessarily say that something is the problem Mm -hmm. or like there's one problem facing society. Um, If anything, I think it's an attitude problem or like I'm gonna go a little Malcolm X here. Um, I think that it's not a, a an American problem, not uh, a church problem. I think it's a human problem. Yeah. And so, got an MLK quote in there. Um, but yeah, so I wouldn't say it's a specific type of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that it. I think that it's it's combated similarly. Like all the different types are combated similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that answers what you were saying. It does. Um, so I kind of what, is this, uh, <laughs> what is this similar method of combating these types of... What, what is that thing that so they... That okay. common solution? I really should have thought before I said that. <laughs> um, I think one of the main things is taking away... It, it's invalidating it. So there's, there's two main ways of doing that, I think. Um, one would be you just say that it's not a problem when it is. Mm-hmm. And then the other is saying, is it really a problem? Like, mm-hmm. even if it's happening, it's mm-hmm. not really right. a problem. And so, and then I think those two things can even work in tandem sometimes. 
to just discredit and pull the plug. Like think if there's one person that has been raped or that has been molested um, and they aren't telling the truth and you find out about that, that is gonna be blown up. Right. As opposed to the millions of billions mm -hmm. of people that have experienced that thing. So um, yeah, so just that invalidation mm -hmm. I think is, is a target. That's really interesting. Um, I'm taking a jurisprudence class right now, and actually, um, interesting timing. Just this week, we, we had two classes this week, and we talked about critical race theory and about feminism. Um, and one of the things that we talked about with feminism is this um, kind of legal judicial tradition of, of really putting the, you know, this wrong, terrible tradition of putting the burden of proof on the woman. Like, you say you've been raped, prove it. And... Um, not only does it have to have been, or at least this is how it used to be, it's, there's been a, some progress, um, but not only did it have to be unwelcome, but you had to resist it physically. Like, if there are no bruises on your body, then yeah. you, can't, you can't have honestly resisted. You must have actually wanted it kind yeah. of thing. So it's, some really just terrible um, ideas and precedents, and, um, and until recently there were no laws for, for dealing with rape in a marriage setting where um, the idea was that, you know, the husband possesses the wife or there's no longer any need for consent or whatever. Um, but, so yeah, I, I, I see how there were a lot of invalidation things going on, just saying like this, you know, we don't have any evidence that this is actually a big problem or um, we're gonna kinda gaslight anyone who says it is. Um, what got you into this? So, why is it personally compelling for you? So it's not hard to connect why I'm with this. So I've experienced this mm -hmm. um, multiple times and in, in multiple different types. Um, and so I, so yeah, so I started, I experienced that. Um, and then another thing was that the main time, the, the justice system didn't help me much. Mm. So I had to look to Christ to, to, to make it through. Because I had a bishop who, um, when he found out, he didn't talk to me for about eight months. Like I, was, like I started a timer. I was like, when are you going to say something to me? Mm -hmm. And when, <laughs> when, I, um, when I went in to meet with him, he, literally, he looked at me and was like, like, why are we here? And I was like, I, I think we know why we're here. Like, um, also, I have a small ward, so it's like, so it was, it's a very small town, yeah. very small, so it's like, he knew what happened, he, the, 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 um, priesthood in the area, priesthood holders in the area knew what happened, right. none of them reached out to me, um, and then I also, I, through that experience, it was also, um, it was, it was, I had an interesting experience where I was also kidnapped and, and experienced that, and, uh, so that was, that happened together, um, so there, there was just a lot of things, and I, I was 14 or 15 at the time when that happened, um, and there was a lot of things to deal with by myself that I shouldn't have had to deal with by myself. Mm -hmm. um, and the church leadership wasn't helpful, and to an extent, I, like, I, I completely understand why my parents, like they were battling with that in their own head, like what happened in my family. So it's, it comes from a very personal place for me, like, because I've experienced it and I know what it is and I hope that no one else ever, like I love when people say I can't relate. I'm like, yeah, I, I never want you to have to. Mm -hmm. um, and 
like I, like I like back to what I, what I was saying before, it really forced me, or it didn't force me, but I had a choice. I had a choice to either kind of do what society told me that I could, and and be mad at the world and be mad at God. Um, but I just had this burning desire because like it was just like everyone shut me out. My parents, the bishopric, like when I went to church, they didn't want to talk to me. Like I had done something. Um, but I had this burning desire to start this nonprofit. I remember I walked into the kitchen and I had uh, a leave from school, like school was helpful in that time. But I, <laughs> I was just like, I'm gonna start a nonprofit. Um, and then everyone was like, 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 a, like, a, like a nonprofit, nonprofit, or like a nonprofit? Like, right, like we're just right. gonna make an Instagram page and call it a nonprofit. <laughs> right. And I was like, no, I'm gonna like file with the state and I'm gonna, uh, I've learned a lot since then, it's not that easy, but, um, but I, I know that that idea was truly divinely inspired because I've even able, been able to bring that nonprofit from Louisiana here. So like we're working with, um, um, ah, we're working with up here at BYU right now. Mm-hmm. So I just see so many blessings. Like I think it was a really difficult thing, and I I definitely know that I did not do it alone. Um, but Heavenly Father quite literally carried me and like used me as a vessel to say that like we're gonna turn this pain into purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm interested. <laughs> so tell me the or- the organization name again. The Uncomfortable Project. The Uncomfortable Project. So this is kind of what I'm visualizing here. Uh, in this circumstance is like that you like you said I really love this uh, like kind of categorical how do we understate and not pitch in to help this problem is by saying that the problem either doesn't exist or when it's existing that it's not as problematic uh, minimizing it essentially yeah and uh, why don't people talk to you when you're going through this like what do you think psychologically is happening to these people? What 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 do they, sir? Like, what do they have to gain by not initiating this conversation? Because I mean, I'm kind of thinking they're just afraid of it being uncomfortable. Is one aspect of this, obviously, not completely, but what what do you think about that? What what stopped them from saying anything? Um, I think people are complex, and there's probably a lot of reasons. So I can't speak to everyone, but I can speak to a lot of people. I think one big thing is this idea that if you're associated with me, you're going down too. Mm. So I know one thing was some people didn't believe me. Right. Um, so they thought that I like that if they were associated with me, they were going to get accused next. Um, and so I think what didn't help that was that there was a few men that did certain things to me. So there were different people getting accused. Right. So they were like... So I had something to benefit from not saying anything because they literally would be they, held accountable for their actions. Yeah. And I think the people learned that I was not... Um, and I think a lot of survivors are like this. A lot of victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse are like this. But they just... Um, like there's there's a personality of just like like I got to the point where I wasn't taking it anymore, um, and I think that that was valid through what I experienced. So like if someone did something to me, I was calling it out. Right. And I think that that idea of accountability um, is one reason that people don't talk about it. Um, and then I think another thing is just lack of like why we do education based. Um, they didn't learn. know how to approach you. 
Yeah, like, 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 what would you say? Like, right. like, do you know what you would say to someone who just was like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, because I mean, you don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why it would be uncomfortable, but like, I lo- I love uncomfortable conversations because I think. Uh, ironically, they mean like the most consistently when I have conversations that are difficult to begin, I have mm-hmm. the most powerful conversational experiences. Mm-hmm. So I'm also, I'm very attracted to uncomfortable conversations. Interesting way to put that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm attracted to uncomfortable uh, conversations kind of like people are attracted to ice baths. You know what I mean? Like they don't ever want to get in, but they do it anyways because they feel like it's good for them and yeah. it's going to help them relax in the long run doing something kind of shocking. Um, I didn't want to cut you off. What were you saying? You t- you were naming some factors. I have no idea what I was saying. Okay. But off of what you were saying, yeah. Uh, I like I I thought it was very interesting how you said I'd, like attracted to that, mm-hmm. and I think that that's interesting. When you get into the realm of sexual abuse, though, that attraction to conversation, like I think you just need to, uh, or in general, just these um, these type of uncomfortable conversations they really have a they can have a make or break impact for mm-hmm. the person you're having them with right so i think that's another like danger like, right. or like stereotype right. stigma sort of thing with right. it is like what i say can really change right. what if i say the wrong thing what if i say the wrong thing right. like you know like i think that there's that idea out yeah. there too so um is you're in this educational process helping people learn how to deal with this better uh, what are some steps that you take? What are things that you educate people about? Um, I don't know if this will come as a surprise, but it's really basic stuff over and over and over again. Like, like we don't even really get into like deep, like, like I don't know, root of the problem sort of things. Right. It's simple things that kind of come down to etiquette. Yeah. Um, and also just um, rehumanizing a survivor of sexual assault. So um, I think that like one thing that I would hear a lot is uh, that I was damaged goods after, mm-hmm. or like there was this idea of like something like you the have lost. Cupcake analogy. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> I heard that for the first time when I came to BYU, and I was like, "What the heck yeah. is this?" Actually, I heard it also for the first from in a church setting. I should say, uh, not even like from Alabama. I had never heard that. Yeah. Never obviously, heard that. I'm a young man as well, so I probably didn't encounter the same types of lessons and stuff. But uh, the variations of that exist in. And not not just in a church culture, but like cross culturally. Like, yeah. Uh, I don't want to. I want you to finish your thought, and I'm going to say something as well. I honestly don't remember what I was. Gonna let say. me tell. Okay, let Go. me tell you what I was going to say. So I talk a lot about biology because, um, I love biology. I love science. It's like my favorite thing. It's like kind of my favorite way to look at the world. I guess it helps me make sense of things when I look at things biologically. Mm-hmm. So why in the world culturally have we had this idea of? Uh, a desecrated property, essentially, when it, when it comes to a woman being sexually active, it's like something's lost. We, I mean, this is found in scripture, like ideas like this, um, where, for example, uh, I actually wrote a paper about this, but uh, which words do we have to describe women throughout time? And I specifically looked at the scriptures. So we have words like virgin, we have words like whore. And we have other words like this that are descriptive, and they almost always classify them by some type of sexual behavior. Men have none of these words. So there's no way to describe a man before sex or after sex in uh, different languages and stuff like that. That's not how we make the distinction uh, etymologically, which I find really fascinating. And we have different words to describe women uh, in a derogatory sense, 
But like some of these words aren't even derogatory necessarily. They're just, for some reason, we've decided to categorize this gender by their sexual behaviors throughout time and now mm-hmm. analyzing them. So here's why. Well, I, unlike even like you know, Miss versus Mrs. Right. Yes. Versus Mrs. Even in modern English, you got those three words, words like where this. it's like it's it's about their marital status, whereas right. the guy is always just Mister. Right. And 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 it's it's the same in other in other languages too. Um, there's a lot to be said about the implicit effect of our language on, on what we think. Oh, yeah. You know, it's an old idea that what you can say or what words you have available in your language will also shape the actual thoughts that you can think. And right. you see this depicted in, like, 1984, where they're literally writing a new vocabulary, the new speak dictionary, that's going to make it impossible to think a heretical thought, to mm-hmm. think a, a non-orthodox thought. thought but... In German, for example, you have the word for, for awesome or glorious is herrlich, which, which means like manly, because a hair is a man, yeah. it's a mister. It's like, Interesting. And then the word for, for dumb or silly is weiblich, or daimlich, sorry, daimlich, which is from the word dame, woman, girl. So you, you have these implicit um, ideas that are really, yeah. really old and really impactful. And so I think biologically, um, women possess a much more valuable uh, gamete, which is an egg, and do the heavy lifting in the gestation process, obviously. <clears throat> so we've, I, I think the biological precedent for why we might have developed these terms and had these ideas is just kind of some acknowledgement of a sexual difference. There's a sexual dimorphism. and almost so many organisms not almost all a bunch of organisms are not sexually dimorphic uh, sexual dimorphism is just the fact that males and females over time develop different traits and attributes physically to distinguish their biology somehow to help the species propagate itself so why do we use these distinctions sexually women have a an egg they carry the baby and thus they have this kind of uh that's, that's almost their, their gendered superpower, you could say. And so we did, we, we've chosen to distinguish them by such in the past. Uh, and I, like saying that has so many implications that don't just have to do with our language, don't even just have to do with how we interact with each other sexually, but like in every category almost how we interact with each other. So I don't even really want to talk about that. I want to funnel it to what we were talking about previously, um, which is, I think... Uh, you were talking about something, and this is why I started talking about it. Oh, yes. So, like, why do we categorize people by their sexual status, specifically women? I think the genetic basis was because their gamete has a different value, and so on and so forth, and it helped us to categorize them. Uh, but the fact that we see them as uh, a used product is, like, it's completely unfounded in, like, any morality, like... Uh, in Christian morality, I should say specifically, like I'd say that doesn't have any precedent. You know what I mean? Like people were trying to s- people. Uh, what does have precedent is they were afraid to say the wrong thing because uh, I don't know they were afraid to do more damage, I guess. But like what didn't have precedent was that why would they be afraid of associating with someone like that? You know, I don't think your value from a moral perspective has changed. I don't really know what I was trying to say. <laughs> I really just wanted to make my biological point, but I was trying to connect it to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, 
Let me ask a, um, a little bit different topic question. Um, let's get into this idea of what is the relationship between advocacy and the gospel and the church, and, and how do we advocate in a religious setting? And, and whatever direction this goes, what bounds does religion set for us when... Because um, we traditionally classify, you know, we've got... You know, a lot of people are like, church and state have to be completely different. And in the church, we also think of it as like, you know, church and politics have to be completely separate. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously the church doesn't formally associate with a specific party, although they have um, supported specific measures from time to time. But, you know, how, how should... Should the gospel restrain our advocacy, or should we... Um, restrain our advocacy in a gospel setting? Can we use the gospel to support our advocacy? How, how do these things, you know, for, uh, especially with civil rights, for example, it has a long tradition of being very heavily associated with, um, with Christianity, with Southern Baptist and, and other Christianity like, like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and especially, I was trying to find a better quote by him. Um, I was pretty sure he said something like, I'm complicit in all the, the evil in the world which I do not fight. Or I, you know, if I see evil and don't fight it, then I'm acquiescing to that yeah, evil. Yeah, politics for good men to be silent. I, I found something kind of close. He said, had I not committed myself to the principle that looking away from evil is, in effect, a condoning of it. And so we do have a, a moral, religious responsibility to fight any kind of evil, including evil that has to be fought politically, through advocacy, through policy. Mm -hmm. Um, but w what relation do you think it has to the gospel? How has being a religious person shaped the way you advocate? Okay, there were a lot of questions. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you're not meant to answer them all. You're meant to pick an idea that you like. <laughs> I'm going to speak. <laughs> you can decide what you like out of it. I think that advocacy and religion, because I'm, speak I'm speaking broadly here, mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily Latter-day saying anything, but advocacy and religion work a lot like an accent. Um, Trevor Noah, mm -hmm. I love him so much. That's just a side note. But <laughs> I just, I, I just. Should I know who he is? I know who he is. Comedian. He? Uh, he used to be the host of the Daily Show. Okay. Um. Yeah. It's, okay. He's from South Africa. He's a he has a great book. Um. Anyway, but that's okay. Awesome. Um, Homework assignment. <laughs> <laughs> so he. I think he's very intelligent, but like in his comedy specials, he would use different dialects. Um. Um, and not necessarily different languages, but he would, he would use different accents. And so the way he described an accent was, um, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that an accent is speaking another language using the rules of yours. And so I think that that works a lot with um, advocacy. You're, you're advocating in the best way you know how using the rules of your religion. So like you're, you're viewing, you're, like you might be, like two different people with different religions might be advocating for the same thing. Mm -hmm. But they're viewing it through different lenses, right. very much like MLK, Malcolm X. They were going for civil rights, maybe like like I, I guess in a sense they were going for different ideas of that. Mm -hmm. But um, in in the end, they did want some sort of equality and some like they wanted whatever it was to be different. Right, right. Or like MLK and Gandhi, you know, they had very similar approaches. They were maybe advocating in very different, you know, societal circumstances. Gandhi is in India and South Africa and. and Martin Luther King Jr. is in America, but this whole 
peaceful protest, nonviolent form of resistance, but both of them were based in religion. You know, Gandhi was thoroughly Hindu, and um, MLK was Christian. Malcolm X is uh, Muslim, mm-hmm. so there's right, unique, a lot of religious yeah. diversity here. Yeah. Did I? Was he Buddhist? Now I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> fact checkers, fact checkers disagree. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure he was Hindu, but. Well, while you find that out, I also think this idea is interesting. So, why is this even a question? Like, it seems obvious from the uh, from the things we've talked about so far. Like, it was the uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Christian conviction that primarily fuels his drive for civil rights. I mean, he writes about that very frequently. It's beautiful. Makes sense. You could do that with a lot of different religious frameworks, moral frameworks. But why this is a question is because we've seen churches advocate for not change before. I mean, when you think of churches, you think of the, the word conservative means to not move far, you know? It means to stay in a similar place and to reject new change, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, like, we, I associate churches with conservatism most of the time, you know? Like, when I think of churches, I think of organizations that don't change that much or that resist societal change even, especially when I think of my own church. Like, I see us as traditionally, there are a lot of principles we've had that are more conservative, do you think? And the problem that a lot of people have is, ah, I would like to advocate for that, but I don't think my church would advocate for that, you know? Mm-hmm. So... I guess I can't do it. Right, a lot of people think that if you're, I, I guess I should say a lot of people within the LDS church tradition, because I don't know that much with, uh, outside of it, but they might think that, you know, the gospel alone is the only thing that we should advocate for, mm-hmm. that we should be missionaries and never political activists kind of thing. Um, oh, somebody said in a recent conference talk, you should be disciples and not advocates. Not conference, uh, BYU devotional. Specifically right. said yeah. those words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have feelings about BYU. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. There are some good ones and there's some bad yep, ones. Yep, there's a lot of variation. <laughs> My favorites are usually the forums. <laughs> I love the forums. Oh, yeah. Love what do you think about that? You should be disciples and not advocates? I think. Where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I. I, if I used strong language, <laughs> I, I, I think that is, um, that belongs in the garbage. Like, that idea that you can't be an advocate, because I think that that is exactly what the Savior was. Right. So, sometimes I, I, I think as a black member of the church, if you didn't know I'm black, but... <laughs> For all the people who can't there. see her, <laughs> yeah. she is black. Her skin is like a caramel, kind of like an <laughs> olive undertone. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, so I I have I had to learn very early, and I think that a lot of um, diverse I, I hate to call them members of the church that are different diverse um, a lot of minorities um, in America at least have to realize early on if you're gonna have a strong testimony that you cannot like that everything like you have to learn the different degrees of like what's that called truth. Yeah, that's that's basically what I meant. I was like, I was like, because we were talking about it in my religion class the other day, and there was a word for it. Doctrine, like, doctrine, like doctrine, policy, principle. That, that yeah, classic yeah. hierarchy. That, yeah. yeah, that classification. I guess it's doctrine down to principle down to policy, right? Doctrine is the unchanging 
policy changes sometimes. Yeah, and principles. then there's like the different kinds, like esoteric and like. Right. Yeah, so I was thinking about that, but yeah, I think that you have to learn very on, and I think it benefits a lot of people to realize that not mm-hmm. everything that comes out of a member of the church's mouth, a member of um, any church, a general leader, authority, a general and authority's the, mouth. Yeah. The prophet himself, Joseph Smith, said, I'm only a prophet when I'm a prophet. When I'm acting and speaking as a prophet, I have my own opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, you know, and, and opinions are subjective. Um, yeah. Honestly, I never would have thought, you know, if you were to ask me, for example, what do you advocate for? Or mm-hmm. are you an advocate? Um, I would say I'm sympathetic with a lot of advocacy movements and organizations, such as something like feminism or African-American rights, um, civil rights, you know, but mm-hmm. as, as white and male, it feels a little bit, I don't know, it feels kind of wrong and maybe even sometimes condescending to say, I feel like people misinterpret it if I say that I am a civil rights activist. Right. Like, Do you have a right to be? I, I, I don't know. Um, but something right. And, and I think answer that's that for you. Fact checkers say yes. Because there is no movement without people outside of the movement. Right. You know that's I mean? true. Of course. Um, but in any case, I don't have personal experience with some of those kinds of things. Um, but something I do feel like I would advocate for is this really general. You know, it's it's problematic because it sounds like I don't know nihilism or critical studies or one of these things. It's like you know. Nietzsche, Freud, nothing has meaning, everything is subjective. That's not where I'm going. But I think they do strike at something important. And I think that in general, we need to recognize that this is an imperfect world filled with imperfect institutions, populated by imperfect people, and the church is no exception. Um, I think this is important for so many areas for um, the history of, of priesthood and the African American population of the church for evolution, for things like current um, gender, sexuality kind of issues, um, basically anything that's a, that's a typical anti-topic or a typical The uncomfortable conversations. Right. There we go. The, the, thing, the, the, the root problem in almost every one of these questions is an implicit assumption that anything that someone representing the church once said can't have been wrong or right. that it was automatically the actual stance of the church right. on that thing um, and you know so for example there was a BYU talk this semester that I very strongly disagreed with most of it mm-hmm. and, and its tendencies I know to, what you're talking about to make us, <laughs> it, was, it was that same talk I said not to be an advocate right. um, it, it was just the idea that um, well I, I just think we need to recognize that um, humans are imperfect, and we don't speak the language of God. And so even a prophet who maybe sees a lot that kind of transcends our language, they still have to find a way to communicate it in our language. And so, mm-hmm. and, and then there's also this idea of accommodation, where, where God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. Um, so as far as maybe historical doctrinal issues, that's where you get some some things that change over time as our knowledge grows, and some things where... Um, things that were once said by, you know, general authorities are imperfect or incomplete. It's a little bit different, I think, with policy or um, what you might call advo- 
advocacy kind of issues um, because it's not necessarily someone seeing something true and communicating it imperfectly as there have just been people who have had wrong opinions right. or um, or justified things that they really had no right like justifying. you know look at the history of uh, using the Bible to justify slavery um, Paul in particular using Paul um, and so I, I think that that's a common root cause of a lot of these problems um, and I think it actually interferes with our ability to believe in and follow prophets. I think we actually can have a lot stronger and more informed faith when we understand what prophets are and what they are not. Mm. Um, and we can focus on the things that they are called to. You know, there, there's an interesting talk by President Packer um, that I read, and this is on Ben Spackman's website where I read this, but or uh, excerpts from it. But he talks about how, like, in, in a lot of countries... And in the United States, too, but especially in countries where the church is younger and growing, you might have someone who is baptized, goes on a mission, is called as an elders quorum president, and then a bishop, and then a 70, and they spend their whole life so busy with these occupations that whatever they know about church doctrine is what they knew before they got that first calling, mm. that, that they haven't had time to, you know, they haven't go, been going to gospel doctrine class right. for 30 years. Um, and generally, you know, the people who study languages Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and the Bible original texts and, and these historical societal cultural context kind of things and um, you know I, I think it's fair to say that most general authorities are called for reasons other than that they're historians or theologians or it's it's probably more about their about their sincerity and their faith and their leadership capacity and their willingness to give all of their time everything that they have so, um, I think what they're called to testify of, and when we, when we recognize that they're called because they know Jesus Christ, and they're called to teach of him. But even then, um, they still make mistakes, and, and there are still things that they, if they, if they can learn, then, then there are things that they don't know. And um, I, I think you kind of see the I general see idea about. I'm getting at here. So... I think that's a root cause of a lot of problems that really should be non-issues. Right. Like the idea that, you know, the, the history of the church with evolution, for example, and a couple prominent church members, um, general authorities speaking out against evolution, well, none of those were people who actually had a scientific training. And the people who did, so you had people like Elder McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith who had very literalist interpretations of scripture. Um, but they didn't have scientific background. But other apostles, like James E. Talmadge and um, Witzel, Witzel, what's his first name? John Witzel? Johnny Witzel? I think. And B.H. Uh, Roberts, people like that, who, who actually had scientific education, they, they were, um, you know, they, they, they didn't see any problem there. And I think it's kind of the same thing with... Um, with other questions, um, people who, you know, for example, like, let's go back to that statement, like, don't be an advocate. That could never have come out of a, a minority's mouth. Right. <laughs> right. Or well, evolution, he, he used something like to evolution is incompatible with the gospel. That could never come out of a scientist's mouth. Right. So I They're think, convinced. 
I don't know. I don't know what. I see what you're saying. I see. Your big idea here to me is that you're helping us understand what the role is of these people who we really carefully consider what their opinions are and allow it to govern a lot of our lives. So it makes a lot of sense. Like there are some things that I've never done and probably will never do just because someone told me that and it was disseminated for like 300 years that I shouldn't do it. You know, that's pretty powerful. I should probably care a little bit about what they say. And at the same time, I want to actually go to your state conference message. Uh, I feel like some people hear these things said and suddenly feel like I don't belong in this organization. Like I'm suddenly, I don't fit here anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a a root layer that is much more uh, serious. For example, saying this group of people cannot receive saving ordinances. It's a huge deal. That has eternal significance and implications. But there's another layer of this that goes further back where people say, well, if this opinion is carried by my church, an initial generalization, then I don't belong here. I can't participate in this church. And I think a lot of times people are unaware of the diversity of opinions that you're allowed to maintain and still choose to follow the Savior. You see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. Um, at the same time, I think there's there's a reason why that's the way that it is. Um, like, I think something that what you were saying kind of alludes to is blacks in the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how to rectify that. Like, like I get what you're saying about how, like, you know, they make mistakes and stuff. But I'm like, their mistakes went into policy. Right. And, and their, their mistakes... mistakes I'm not moved people. in entire. Right, and I'm not suggesting I know how to write. No, I, I'm not. Um, no, this this passion that I'm feeling is not directed uh-huh. towards tell you. Us, it's, tell it's us. It's just. I don't even like know how to describe the pain that it causes. Like my my grandmother. Um, she joined the church. She was a pioneer in our family. Um, and my dad and my mom joined uh, together um, after her. Um, and they were, uh, the place that I grew up is majority black. Mm-hmm. So BYU's culture shock. If you, like if there was a stronger <laughs> word for that. But BYU's opposite. BYU is the opposite. Like it's not, it's more than the opposite. Cause like there were, there was tons of diversity where it was. Uh-huh. Um, it's just that black happened to be the mm-hmm. 50 percent, right, mm-hmm. right. you know so um anyway but she, my grandmother was one of the first five to join and mm-hmm. it was still majority black in that time so um i i think that there is something to say about representation and an area most likely i i think that there are merits to the argument the areas should re- reflect their populations mm-hmm. so i'm saying if you have an 80 percent black population in this city um the area is probably 50 but it, in this city that i'm talking about and you have five, if you have thousands of black people there and there are five black people in that congregation, four of which from the same family, mm-hmm. I see an issue. Yeah, something's mm-hmm. going on. I see an issue. And um, I don't, know, like every time that like all of my friends back home, um, I think that we've gotten to a place where I can say, where they respect what I believe. But if we start talking about blacks in the priesthood, mm-hmm conversations over like they win (laughs) no I I get that Um, I don't have an answer to that one yet either I don't know if I will I think um, 
But what I do want to say about that is I think it's extremely childish and irresponsible to dismiss that issue as, first of all, people say it was policy, not doctrine, which, first of all, I think is an oversimplification. Second of all, the, like the, this uh, same really difficult talk where it says don't be an advocate, he also endeavored to answer this question, mm-hmm. and he said, all I know is it was in the past. Right. And it's not anymore, and that doesn't solve it. Because what you were saying about Temple, you know, let's really... Let's really get into this one. Let's get into um, this one. This is something I wanted to talk about. So, the reason is, there's no support in the scriptures for the policy. So in that sense, yes, it was not doctrine. But on the other hand, um, by by prohibiting priesthood ordination and by prohibiting temple entrance to these people, um, in a church that believes that temple ordinances are the only way to be exalted... That is an indirect way of saying that you cannot be exalted or you cannot be saved, mm-hmm. which in turn has direct implications for how we, who or what we conceive God to be, what kind of person he is, which is the very foundation of our religion. Right. The first principle of our religion, Joseph Smith says, is to, to know God and to know that you can speak with him as a man speaketh with another face to face. But to know God, he says you can't have faith unless you know that God exists unless you have a correct idea of him and then lastly being righteous unless you're being righteous so um, it's not periphery or incidental or dismissible at all um, and we can go back to the fact that you know especially like let's take because um, one one approach would be to say Brigham Young was legitimately racist that would be one way to and, and say he was still a prophet in other ways, that this was not a prophetic truth that he taught. This was a um, wrong, culturally influenced personal belief that he had, that he taught. But um, so Josh's source game is so strong. He, he's looking so. things he's looking like eight things up at a time while he's So speaks. here's an interesting um, from official declaration, which proclamations are also an interesting question, whether oh, these man. are policy or doctrine. <laughs> do, okay, I have, because they're, they're kind this, of canonized. They're published, to... they're published with the scriptures. Yeah, we t- we these two this. official proclamations are in a way that proclamation sense have not been there in the scriptures. Right. Um, this is from President Woodruff from the first proc- declaration, official declaration one, where he um, ends the practice of polygamy. Right. Um, but he says, The Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place. And so he will any other man who attempts to lead the children of men astray from the oracles of God and from their duty. So th- there are just so many problems introduced by these ideas. So many um, and by and by problems, I, I just mean broadly that how do we reconcile this? Mm-hmm. You know, we could say that right here. This is just President Woodruff's opinion again, and that was wrong. And the church was in a in a sense and temporarily led astray in one in one issue area for a time by one leader. Um, or we have a probably more problematic solution that it, this was. Um, never intended to be permanent, but it was what, and I, I'm just exploring the ideas here. I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> but that 
that it's God intended out. for that to happen? Is that an option that we really I've, say? I've heard all of like, these people propagated ask, by even, different people. Before we even ask the question, you know, is evolution compatible with the gospel? We ask, are we allowed to think that evolution is compatible with mm-hmm. the gospel? Before we ask the question, was the policy on blacks and the priesthood a mistake? We ask, are we allowed to think it was a mistake? Right. I don't ask that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ask that. Right, it's, it's, it's a, yeah. a lot of people do, and a lot of people... Right, it's, it's not in the temple recommend questions. Right. Which, um, neither is polygamy. I should, I think... Um, that I don't think, I know it's not, but I think that... that more or less, the temple recommend questions are where you're... Um, I don't like the word allowed, but not allowed to have a different opinion and still be a temple recommend holding member, you know? Not if honest. you have a different opinion about the divinity of Christ, then you're not given a temple recommend. That's not mm-hmm. true of polygamy or race and the priesthood right. or some other issues. So um, that, ki- that kind of, it, it really gets us down to bare bones. It's kind of interesting. I've thought about this a lot, but like uh, the baptismal interview questions for a convert which are necessary. We're all converts. I don't know why I use that word, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. For a new member joining the church who has to answer a slightly different set of questions as opposed to an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. And the temple recommended inter- interview questions are our creed as a church mm-hmm. in, in the traditional sense of a creed. For example, the, you pledge the Nicene Creed in other denominations and other creeds written in early Christianity, for example, but we really don't have any creeds. The Articles of Faith are not creeds either. We're not asked and required to believe them, even though they're a canonized part of Scripture and other things like that. You actually could have your own opinion about those things, I think. I think the only thing, and, and even in a Temple Recommend, uh, I think I love the Temple Recommend interview questions because like, they're really nuanced. Like The last question is, what do you think about yourself? Do you want to go? That's like so interesting. We at, we allow an introspective question at mm-hmm. the end, and we have these questions like, "Do you have faith in Jesus Christ?" For example, I think that means so many different things to so many different people. Like, I could be hanging on by a thread, you know. Like, I'm a. I don't know if I could do this anymore. I don't know if I could believe anymore. And I can say, there's a little shred of me that says yes to that question. And I really, I think that's uh, admissible. I think I can go in after that. I think that's really beautiful. As a total side note, though. Okay, so I want to move into like a modern example of this. Okay. So let's, yeah, let's, I love this phrase, the wrong side of history. It's an interesting phrase, right? So let's look at the church's past. Uh, we normally say that in reference to societal progression. Um, I have so many things I want to say, and I got to stop myself from saying all the things because I'm going to not make my point. So this is my point. We normally say in reference to society, these people were on the wrong side of history. We now know slavery was wrong. So those who practiced it were on the wrong side. That's an example. So then a lot of people make the argument, I've heard this argument personally, we were wrong, we were on the wrong side of history with this part of our church history, you know? When we decided to deny this group of people, African American people, or black people, I should say, that's more encompassing, Uh, the priesthood and these temple things, we were on the wrong side. And we've corrected ourselves since then. What about these X, Y, and Z? Are we also on the wrong side of history with them? And because we've made a mistake in the past, do we, is it possible that I should advocate for these things in the future? Okay, so actually, I actually, I said I wanted to use one example, but I want to use two. Number one, it's the 1960s. I'm a member of the church. 
I live in Virginia, let's say. And I go up to my bishop and I say, hey, I want you to, I wrote a letter to the First Presidency. I want you to talk to your leaders about this, but I think black people should have the priesthood. Do I have a right to say that? Am I stepping out of line? Should I have advocated for that? Because now the change would have gone in my favor, almost as if I prophesied that it would happen. What if I talked to them and said, hey, the church will change this policy one day. I know it's not doctrinal. So I'm advocating for it right now so it happens as soon as possible so my brothers and sisters don't have to suffer as much. Is that valid as well? What do you guys think about that? Should I have done that? If well, I like a really rich example. Um, which, first of all, let me just throw in with that one. You know, like Joseph Smith conferred the priesthood on at least one black person. Right. I don't know if there was others besides Elijah Abel. But... Um, so, uh, I understand why church leaders after Brigham Young felt a need to receive revelation right. before changing That's the policy, something that had become more or less institutionalized. And I understand that getting principle for... Um, I don't understand why it took so long. Um, so it's really about the origin of it that's, that's really the hard part. Um, but let me, uh, a recent example, 2014, the church had a policy, new policy, that um, the children of homosexual couples could not be baptized. That's my second, this is my second example. And 2019, I believe it was, that policy was reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do or should I have done in that five-year period, if I'm a member of the church, who believes that that policy is not of the gospel right. of Jesus Christ? And then you were right. What do you think about this, Jada? I really want to hear what you think about this. And maybe personally, uh, it seems uh, fair to assume that you think the history with African Americans and the priesthood was wrong or a mistake. Is that true? Would you say that? Look at you. We're asking you the tough, the uncomfortable questions. <laughs> or, in any case, personally <laughs> problematic, right? <sighs> Is that, is that fair to say that it was... Just think, take your time and think about it. A source of tension for you with the gospel? Yes? She's thinking no. about it. She's thinking about it. She's thinking about it. Just, just it. let her think about it. Period. <laughs> Period. Right there. Okay. The like, question is over. So like, I need, I need to sort process. the questions out in my head. Let it process. Yeah, you said a lot. Um, what I want to ask about that is <laughs> just how you reconcile it. He's, for, like, he's reformulated. While she thinks he's about it, new approach. Let, me, let me throw out an interesting example. Um, See, look, his mind is endless. Like, you may have heard of, I'm sure you know Someone's who Darius is. You know, <laughs> look, like, he's a thinker, man. He's the thinker. I am a thinker, too. I'm just, I think before I speak. Not that you don't. I'm just saying that's I don't. I it's to, okay. <laughs> I was like, we're, well, we're hearing Josh's thoughts in real time. This actually. is a stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um, do you know who Darius Gray is? No. No? I think it's Gray. Um, I think he, calls, he says Darius when he pronounces Darius. it. Darius. Anyways, he's, a, he's an interesting, he's got an interesting story. He's a member of the church who was baptized, um, I believe it was early 1970s. Mm, I think you're so right. So he was Maybe meeting with the missionaries. Um, he's African American. And he, he's accepted the baptismal invitation. He's decided he's going to join the church. Um, it's just like the day before his baptism, he has one final meeting with the missionaries, and he has a question for them, because he's reading in the Book of Mormon, and he, he reads about this uh, curse on the Lamanites, and he asks the missionaries, 
you know, there's this curse and it sounds like it's something about skin color. What does this mean for me as a member of the church? And the missionaries, eve of his baptism, are just kind of like, well, Darius, what this means for you is that you're not going to be able to hold a priesthood. This is before the policy was revoked in 1978. First time he heard this. And this is the first time he heard anything about this, and he is just, you know, totally dumbstruck. He's just, you know, like, I've been totally fooled. Like, they've been pulling one on me this whole time. And he, um, you know, he, he's like, I'm not going to get baptized into this church. It's just another, it's the same old thing. Which his family had been warning him about right. consistently throughout this um, process. Yeah, I don't know his whole story. I've just seen this one interview with him. But anyways, he, he in his bedroom that night, um, he has an experience where he feels like the Holy Ghost tells him, um, and I don't want to misquote, so I'm going to say it very vaguely, but something along the lines of like, that's not, don't worry about that, or even like, that's not true what they said to you last night but you should still be baptized. And he, he was still baptized, and so he still had this big question mark, this big source of tension. And then, of course, several years later, the policy was reversed in 1978. Um, but that doesn't take away the historical question or the, or the difficulty of that history in our church or the difficulty of um, continuing opinions and, and, and prejudices. Um, so, kind of big general question here is, because a lot of us feel like we have to stifle these tensions. If I have a tension, if I have a disagreement, I'm in the wrong automatically. Because the contention is but, the But devil. historical examples between, 19, <laughs> between 2014 and 2019, for example, show that it's very possible for you to be, assuming, well, I mean, maybe, maybe you have an interpretation that's like, what they did in 2014 was right, and what they did in 2019 was right, too. It was just different things for different times. Right. And, the, well. and they weren't saying that what they did in 2014 was wrong when they recalled it in 2019. That's, that's an option. But I think we have enough historical examples to say that, obviously, the church and church leaders make mistakes. And if, if they're wrong sometimes, then people who disagree with them can be right sometimes. What do we do about that? Even you know, a broken clock and, is and, twice a day, uh, right? <laughs> okay, okay, look, look. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here's the question. Okay, here's the question. What do you want with this? Here's what Josh has been trying to ask you. Uh, like in that first scenario I said, is it valid to, to advocate for a change that hasn't happened yet? That's the question that you think was in there? Yes. Yeah. That feels like we just went back to your question. <laughs> um... Okay, again, I'm just going to speak. And you can choose what you like. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm still thinking about that. What bothers me, and I can only say me because I find that a lot of times, because there are so few black people, less than 1%. In the on, church? You mean? Or on this campus. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I, when, when you find one, it's like a Pokemon go, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 
So people often look at me and want me to answer questions like, what do you think black people should think of? Right. And not that that's what you're asking me. Like you're representative yes. of everyone's And I'm opinion. like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, because my, my experiences are not just shaped by being black. That, that is a big part of my right. experience. So but it's also being here. a woman. It's also going through what I went through in high school. It's uh-huh. also Louisiana. It's also Louisiana. It's, it's my parents and my ancestors. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, all right. Um, and then they're black people, like, that's just a piece of who they are, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but what bothers me is that is any time that these, like, these, um, like, we can talk about this for hours, obviously. But they have real consequences for people. Right. Mm-hmm. And what bothers me is when you exclude someone from receiving a blessing because of something that they cannot possibly control. Mm-hmm. So, because part of me, what I look up to heaven and ask often is... I didn't choose to be black. Like, God sent me here. He sent, like, we're often taught. We were sent to this family, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what, what did I do up there that, like, mm-hmm. I'm like some mistranslation, something in the genome, you know? It, it was just, <laughs> I know, like, you catch my jokes a little bit. I'm like, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, but, like, that, that conference, um, not that conference talk, that BYU right. devotional. Where he said um, that if we have a problem to replace Christ with it, like if, right. we, if he you says have a if problem, you disagree with the church policy, instead of saying in your mind I disagree with this, say I disagree with Jesus. This Christ. is our most quoted source today. <laughs> Shout out to Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, like, and and while while um. I don't know what your reactions to that were. Maybe you're just like, oh, I, I don't like it. No, whatever. I had big problems with that talk. Josh yeah. had a good conversation about it. I'm so sure you did. Tell me what you think. Keep going. Okay, so I'm good. trying to push through. <laughs> I, I remember when I heard it, I just cried. Because any time, like, like, again, these things that people say, and even when they can come back and say, well, it was just my opinion. But they have real consequences for people. Spoken from a pulpit, from an authoritative position. Quoted in, quoted in two of my classes, by the way, afterwards. Oh even because that's another thing. We quote BYU devotionals. I'm like, that's not general conference. And then at the same time, if I go back up like 20 years and listen to Bruce R. McConkie, mm-hmm. then I'm like, I don't want to quote that either. <laughs> so, so then I just stick to the scriptures. <laughs> and, and I don't want to. I want to be able to. But um, I, I, one thing that I want to point out is that and there's a huge disclaimer with this. I am probably wrong. Um, but one thing I want to point out is that God said he would give us trials. And I think sometimes we think, oh, like these trials, like I have cancer or I have like, like these trials that we can identify like as trials like that. That's a trial. Mm-hmm. But these are like these complex trials mm-hmm. that really strengthen you mm-hmm. in a way that nothing else possibly can. Right. Um, so, so like this, like this idea, like I, because anything that's not from the scriptures, like general conference talks, BYU devotionals, like there are parts of them all that I am like, mm-hmm. I don't think I agree with that. And that I, another thing is, I think that that could be Heavenly Father giving us the opportunity to exercise our agency. And I don't ever think that it's wrong to think. I think it's wrong if you get stuck in your thoughts. But I think, I don't think, like you guys were saying a lot about if we're allowed to do that, if we're right. not allowed to do that. I think that is like throw that out the window mm-hmm. because we have agency, and so like like my answer the entire time you were talking about that I was just like agency like right. you can think it like think about it. Hopefully you get over that, 
but like you can go through the thought process like I don't think because otherwise you never learn and you never grow Mm -hmm. and so I think that sometimes the gospel can seem so complex like um, and then it can also seem oversimplified but um, the gospel something that I like to say is that the gospel is very simple Um, because if there's really anything that I need to know it's probably everything I knew when I was eight Mm. the gospel is very simple but we deepen our understanding of those simple principles. They don't complexify, because I don't think there's really anything that needs to be up here over our heads. Um, because if, we ch- if the gospel is true, which I believe it is, then that means that it's for everyone. And so everyone, like, it has to be accessible for everyone. Right. So yeah. I'm like, that translates to me as it has to be simple enough. It has to be simple for a child to understand. And so like, when, when we're talking about all these issues, like. I don't have an answer for them. And I'm very hesitant to comment on those things because I know that what I'm saying, no matter how many people listen to this, I'll know that I said it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, Blacks in the Priesthood, I know they can't see what I'm doing, but it's just <laughs> it's confusion. <laughs> she, made, she did the sign language for confused. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see. think that's, I really, let me throw something in. I throw really, something in there. Josh. I really like what you said about just agency and, and thinking for ourselves. There's a, I used to take it as kind of a joke, but now I almost believe it. Um, there's a quote from Truman G. Madsen in ABYU Talk, um, where he, he's actually quoting someone else. He's uh, is this one apostle who used to swear a lot and who is misquoted yeah. wrong all the time, Jay Golden Kimball. Yeah, Jay Golden um, He's like, there's a quote from him, and maybe I'm totally botching this, but in any case... The idea that he relates that he from someone else is that some leaders are given to us to lead us and some are given to us to try us. And, and it's complicated in relation to ideas like that Wilford Woodruff quote, or the idea that the church has been irrevocably restored. There will never be another universal apostasy, right? Which has some implicit idea that there's something core about the church that is that God will not allow it to go off the path, you know? That he's is kind of a guided development, and he's not going to allow something too bad to happen. Um, but like, probably, I, I definitely didn't. Um, I was really upset by by this one, this one talk as well, and the reason for that is because, for me, I dis, I just, I, I used to have a hard time. I was like, what do I do if I disagree? It's like, I must be wrong or something, mm-hmm. you know. It's, but now I'm just like, I disagree. Based on everything I know, that's wrong, and I'm okay with that. He's still a general authority. He has, I like the way Ben Spackman puts it, he says they have ecclesiastical but not epistemological authority. Mm. We mm. have individual revelation. We have our own experience. You know, They do not have a, a monopoly on the way we find out truth, but they do have a certain form of authority that we recognize as ecclesiastical. Right. So for me, it was like this is on its face wrong, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But I was really troubled because I knew, on the whole, most right. people, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal development that takes time, and most people are not there yet. So what um, if this is disseminated so the and tendency, weaponized against right. people? And, the, and, and even not, I'm not even thinking like anti, just like people who heard this, the tendency of this is going to be um, to make people feel like they don't belong, like you were saying. Right. Um, you know, the with the whole advocacy and disagreeing thing like what does a person do what should a person do right now 
who disagrees with the church's stance about same-sex attraction and who, who looks and sees that things like polygamy and blacks in the priesthood have changed in the past. You, just, just what does someone do in that situation? Um, I, I personally think this one is a little bit different. Um, I, I personally don't believe that the that this is a there's a lot of evolution to happen with this policy and with the approach and we've seen that and there's a lot more understanding and acceptance than there was five ten years ago right <laughs> but I don't personally think that there will that we'll ever see same-sex marriages performed in the temple for example mm-hmm. that's, that's my personal belief um, so I, I don't necessarily think that this, that's a thing that advocacy is going to cause it to change or mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, well, what about the word of wisdom, for example? That's another modern example. Right. Like, maybe we'll be able to drink tea and coffee in a little bit. And it was just like, hey, that was a good test. Thanks for working hard, guys. Well, and, and, but, but also my approach to that one has kind of been like tea and coffee. Um, you, you got a lot of science on either side, right? But even if they were completely healthy, God could perfectly legitimately require us to avoid this one thing just as a test. Um, I, I don't think the Word of Wisdom was intended to be a comprehensive list of bad substances or an objective scientific uh, treatise on human health or anything like that, although it does have a lot of that kind of truth in it. Mm-hmm. Um, just well, wanna, well, last okay, I, okay, okay. I'm okay. sorry, I'm a hose today. Um, <laughs> I really like what you were saying about the just the trial factor as well. I was uh, listening to something earlier today. Um, Hugh Nibley was talking about the the actual um, what's the plant science called? The the science of plants. Uh, um, God, horticulture. Horticulture. God, the actual horticultural truth. Behind Jacob Five, <laughs> yeah, got it every year. Yeah, Bonnie. Fact checkers say it's called culture. You know, whatever you want to call it, the truth behind Jacob Five and and olive trees, and just the really interesting thing is, olive trees grow best in like the worst, like rocky, terrible, in, in good soil. Or at least I should say, grow best in that they produce the best fruit. Hmm. They produce the best fruit when they're planted in really difficult soil, really rocky. They have to like grow around these big rocks and stuff. But at the same time, they require an immense amount of cultivation, cultivation and, and tending and attention. And that's what you see in Jacob 5 is all this grafting in and out and this dunging and this digging and all that. Um, and I really think that's how God treats us. He puts us mm-hmm. in tough soil and then he is immensely attentive to us. He's with us there in every step. But he doesn't throw us in um, easy water as Joseph Smith says I am want to swim in deep water mm-hmm. okay Ooh. I've had like 10 conversations in my own <laughs> head at this point I know and none of them are finished <laughs> uh, it's like I have like 12 tabs in my brain uh-huh. and I closed any of them um, what did I want to say I you were starting to say something when I was talking about... Okay, so here's what I wanted to say. Sexuality. I, uh, Carl G. Mazur, what does he do to prove that he's an honorable man? He draws a circle of chalk around himself. That's the infamous quote, right? If I were to draw a circle of chalk around myself right now, I would, never, like, I would die before I left it. 
If he promises never. If to he leave. promises never to leave it. So that the point he's trying to make is that he's a man of his word. Beautiful point. But he would never draw a line of chalk around himself and never leave it, right? Because that's a stupid thing to do. No one would ever draw a line of chalk around themselves and not leave it forever. Uh, so that's not the point he's trying to make. And we use it, ironically, to justify the chalk lines around ourselves. Like, like people say, people only tell you things like that when they're giving you a rule that doesn't make sense, right? So we're only you asked to use our honor to justify things that are non-rational. You know, we're not used, asked to, like, use your honor to love your neighbor. Well, we should, but we aren't asked to do that. Because apparently it doesn't require honor. Because all it requires is rational sense. Mm -hmm. And so we're appealing to something else. And I think this actually has a lot of implications. Like, I only have one mortal life. I have a lot of life before and a lot of life after. I'm under the assumption that life is an eternal, beautiful thing. And uh, that my course is probably around, kind of like Heavenly Father's is. And I actually think it's uh, infinite. But... It, considering I have this one mortal existence, how many chalk lines am I going to subject myself to? You know what I mean? Like, th these are things that have real implications for how I'm going to choose to live my life. And I think some chalk lines are more arbitrary than others. Like, some of these things, you might say, well, come on, man. It's just tea and coffee. Like, you got to throw away everything just for that. Like, it's such a silly thing. But, like, that's my exact argument. It is such a silly thing. So why do I have to pledge by my honor not to do this very silly thing that I think has no real implications? For example, I'm doing that as a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. And some of these chocolates have more. For example, you said, I think the gospel, if the gospel is true, then it needs to be for everybody. Uh, and I think a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community don't feel like it's for them. They're like, I was born this way. Exactly. Can I go all the way? Or is this not for me? So, yeah. You talked about how people can belong. I really want to, I want you to talk about that. Okay. I think that one thing members of the church can do better is respect when people make different decisions. When, when someone decides not to join the church, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I promise you Heavenly Father knew that they were going to make that choice. I promise you. Mm -hmm. Not with my apostolic promise, but <laughs> whatever you can get from my word. Yeah. Like he knows, like, right? Like we believe Heavenly Father knows everything. Then he knew that they were going to make that choice. And I think sometimes there's a right time for people to join the church. Like, I think that it's, it's okay. And I learn a lot. Oh, my goodness, I learn so much when I'm in Baptist churches. I feel the Spirit so strongly because people genuinely love each other. Mm -hmm. People hug. And, like, like, it's just like... They clap after you sing. <laughs> they, clap, <laughs> they clap for you no matter how bad you sounded. <laughs> like, they, like I, it's okay to make a different choice, and it's okay to be differences. And I think that we need to, like, I think that... Sometimes we get into this idea that like people have to be the same way. Right. And I know a lot of people who do not, who do drink coffee and who do drink tea and are members and they still consider themselves temple worthy and that's a whole different conversation. Um, but sometimes I think that people like it doesn't ha like it, it doesn't fall on us. You know what I mean? Like this idea of like we're not supposed to judge unrighteously. Like, those things like that, I honestly think are trivial. I think that those things are the things that don't matter. I That's when I really look to God and I say, that's you. Like, mm -hmm. this is my lane and everything else is you. Like, right. <laughs> I'm staying in my lane. And unless, like, God tells me through personal revelation to do something about that, I'm good. And I think that, like, differences are not a bad thing. Differences are necessary. Right. And so to say that anyone does not belong 
um, it's just so, so wrong to me because if anything, differences um, are diversities and diversities enrich, which is something that I said in that talk. Yes. Um, diversities enrich and like, like the same way that you wouldn't know good if you didn't have evil. Like, and not to say that different choices are, are evil. It's just like, I think at its essence, like this idea of original grace, like we all want, like we all have good inside of us innately. Like we innately have that. Okay, I said mm-hmm. it. Um, <laughs> um, what was I, there was a point that was really on the tip of my tongue. Everyone belongs. Original um, grace. You have so much to say about this. Initial, wait, no, it was so good. It was so good. You have something so good. To it's say. So, it was right there. <laughs> it was right there. I just like, I said innately wrong and then I was like, I lost everything. <laughs> I was like at the late <laughs> The tabs are buffering. Yeah, I was... Wait, diversity is enriched? Enriching, that was in the talk you sent. And in the talk you were talking... You're telling us about there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. And belonging as divine. Right. Yeah, because they're derived from different places. Belonging, like, I'm just remembering the talk now. Um, Yeah, because belonging is derived from above. Fitting in is maintained by the environment. Right. right. Um, But there was something I was going to say about... Oh, this idea of original grace is... Oh, got it. She's got it. We, I think we all, in our core, like, despite all of our differences, are seeking the same thing. Like, Mm -hmm. we want to be happy. Mm -hmm. We're all just taking different avenues of getting there. Mm -hmm. That's literally the whole point I was trying to make, and I threw it out the window. But, like, we all just want to be happy. Mm -hmm. And I think that when... And I decide, like... If you ever hear people that say that they don't see color or that they don't see differences or like, we're all just children of God. We all are children of God, but there's no just in there. We all have a ton of other, like President right. Nelson said, we have a ton of other things that are on our list that make us us. And that's necessary. Like um, Nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to be afraid of. It. We should embrace those differences. And I think that, yes, those differences need to, like, they'll change. Like, like right, there is a right and wrong. Like, I'm not saying to justify sin, but what I'm saying is that when someone does sin, please don't personally take it upon yourself to bring them to their maker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I think you, like, a lot of things, I think we, if, if anyone's like me, you carry a lot of things that aren't yours to carry. Right. And I, I think I do a poor job of adhering to that scripture about, like, Jesus take, taking our burdens and bearing yeah. our burdens. Like, there are a lot of things that we can quite literally give to God. And... I feel like one of my greatest um, callings in this life is to make sure people feel like they belong, because they do. Like they're like if I'm making anyone, if I ever make anyone feel uncomfortable, and I know that I have, I'm I'm on my soapbox right now, but I know that I have. Um, that is the furthest thing from what I want and what I know Heavenly Father wants. Mm. Because even if even if I give someone the wrong advice or like if if I think if I do hold the wrong belief, I know. That I I know that I'm not gonna like arrive at the gates of heaven and Heavenly Father's gonna be like, turn back, you were too nice to someone. <laughs> you made them feel too welcome. <laughs> you right. you know what I mean? So it's like I you never have to worry about making sure someone fits in. If anything, do your best and, and I I fervently believe that Heavenly Father will correct you if you're going a little too far. I think like, so. Like he'll too. just he'll be like, Oh Yeah. yeah. Can I read a Joseph Smith quote here? Read a Joseph um, Smith quote. I want to hear a Joseph Smith quote. This, this is good. Um, it says, I believe all that God ever revealed, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. 
And I, I think it's kind of a similar idea there. We're not going to be punished for being too loving. Yeah. God does not want us to be constricted and confined. And, you know, um, I totally agree that there is a right time, and sometimes that time is not in this life for people to join the church. I think there have been a, a lot of God's most chosen people have been people who are not members of this church, people like Gandhi and MLK and C.S. Lewis, who have done amazing things for the universal cause of good, for this universal human striving that will lead to happiness, and they weren't members of the church. Um, mm-hmm. I was thinking of a, you're talking about original grace, and um, I think, you know, that's often described in the church as the light of Christ, is this original goodness that we're given, this innate um, her- inheritance. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants 84 says, The Spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world. Every man, you know, every person that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit, and everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. And, you know, it doesn't say joins the church. Everyone that hearkeneth to the Spirit joins the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a different place where Christ says, this is how you'll know them, because they come not unto me. And it's always about that. It's about coming unto me. It's about coming unto God the Father. And there are so many Baptists and so many other people who are coming unto Christ and coming unto God the Father in, in, in the best way they know how. Um, yeah, it's, it's just like that. Amen. That's beautiful. I, I want to offer some, just like, of my concluding thoughts. You guys can give some of your, what you want people to hear from you. I wish we could have just listened to you talk for like an hour because I love everything that you said. And uh, I actually relate a lot to what you say, and I think it's coming from a similar place because I was also from a, a small congregation in Alabama. And, the pr- like, it's totally different when you come here. And it's I understand why demographically, but if everyone around you is a member of the church and they have their unique opinions like there's way more standardization here which is just a natural result of being a a high population of uh, members of any group that happens it happens in mecca too you know and other religious hubs but like i coming to byu i've never been so critical of myself or critical of my decisions that i've made Mm -hmm. and i'm i was already like pretty self-critical like i was always analyzing what i did trying to but I felt this peace when I analyzed myself and like mm-hmm. a lot more forgiveness for myself mm-hmm. previous to being here because I, I don't know there's a different kind of pressure and I feel like there's so much more scrutiny here and I think it's I think it's a natural result of things but I think coming from a place where this isn't the norm I've been able to realize things from the outside that maybe people from the inside have mm-hmm. trouble recognizing that they've never known a time where if you said something publicly that disagreed with what a church leader said recently, you could be, you know, there's a massive shameful consequences for sharing those activities. And people will talk about you and all these other things. And people will make these conclusions about your faithfulness. And that's nothing I ever experienced, you know. I felt way more free to share the kind of thoughts that I had. And I thought that was beautiful for me. And there's something beautiful about this too, the self-analysis has sometimes been helpful and helped me to make changes that I might not have otherwise made. 
And I think what I was experiencing prior to this was also beautiful. I felt a freedom in my pursuit of Christ. I felt it was so much easier to respect other people's relationship with the Savior there because I was looking, I was trying to see how they were living their life in their circumstance rather than as if we're all living in this one bubble where all of the other factors are the same. It was easy for me to understand someone else's life has different factors and they're probably doing the best they can with what they have. I said all this to say, he said something, he said something earlier about we have different trials. And um, my, like, the most difficult thing for me is dissonance. When I have one idea that I believe is true and another idea that I also believe is true, but they conflict with each other. And this conversation is attractive to me because it's so dissonant. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, how can I believe this and this? And you know what? When I'm by myself, sitting in my apartment, and I have these two contradictory ideas, I feel like I'm going to tear myself in two pieces. You know? Grab both my ears and just rip. Because I'm like, I can't keep doing this. Am I a hypocrite? Is somebody wrong? Have I been lying to myself? All these other things. But you know when I feel better about this? So I talk to people like you. I talk to people like Josh. Like, these conversations are like, they're like my heartbeat moving forward, you know? If I, if I didn't know that there was anybody else that had this kind of dissonance, I don't know if I could keep going. But turns out, it's not that weird. It's not even that embarrassing. This is something a lot of people feel. But they keep going. And you keep going. You have a very powerful testimony of the Savior. And I love the way you're living the gospel. And it's ob I love it so much. It's obviously not the exact same way I am. But I think that's because we're living a totally, in a totally different world. You and I with totally different experiences. And I really believe we're doing the best we can with what we have. And I also really believe that we're strengthening each other. So anyways, I want to say, ironically, this dissonance that I feel like is impossible to reconcile might be the thing that strengthens my testimony and my faith the most, more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that unless I was embraced by people who loved me and accepted me for who I was, where I was at. So... Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, one last thought I have here, because um, I totally agree with everything you said about dissonance. I think it's important, though, to, to be able to recognize in our own lives when this process is operative. You know, when we, um, because if we're just in the dissonance but don't really perceive the dissonance or, or don't really understand what's going on, that's when it can really cause problems for us and cause us to abandon our faith or abandon um, our, our traditions or whatever. Um, I just want to recommend here for, for uh, in general, anyone... All of our listeners. Yeah, all, all ten of you. <laughs> are you at home? Because <laughs> um, it really is it's that rocky ground principle. God is going to plant us on rocky ground, but then he's going to tend to us. Um, there's a really fantastic book um, by Bruce and Marie Hafen. Um, they're a couple uh, in, in the church. Bruce Hafen used to be a 70, but now he's retired and writing books with his wife. Um, but it's called Faith is Not Blind. And they, they kind of have this three-stage paradigm about moving from simple faith to what they call ambiguity um, and then on to informed faith. And the idea is that we don't want to remain in either of the first two stages, that both of them are less rewarding than this. And so it's just a way to understand why God gives us these kinds of questions and these, 
these issues in this child and it won't take the issue away but it will take the issueness of the issue away mm. like you're not you're still going to have issues or questions or uncertainties or doubts or whatever after but the fact that you have them isn't going to be as problematic to you anymore you're not going to have an issue that my issue is that i have issues mm. you're just going to have issues <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, just a recommendation to, to kind of understanding this process of dissonance and why it's a characteristic of every one of our experience. Okay. Um, I don't need to recap anything I said. I think you got it. But um, if there was anything that I hoped you remembered, like if you just fast forwarded to the end, um, I think we often hear this idea as members of the church that, like we hear that this is the true church, right? Like where this is the church that has all the truth and the, the other monopoly. Right. So I just encourage you to remember that we also know that other churches have pieces of the truth. And because of that, I just I think we limit ourselves like spiritually from other faiths. So I can just be like, well you just must be wrong. But you can learn anything from anyone. And then secondly, um, belonging includes you. So as much as you should make other people feel belong, like they, like they belong, um, it, it starts with you. And I know personally that it's really hard to make other people feel like they belong in this world if you don't feel that yourself. Um, and if you don't feel that yourself, I guess I'm, I'm, my heart goes out to you because I know how hard that is to feel that. Um, and I don't have a list. I don't like. I wish I could just be like, "This is what you should do." If you're feeling this way, like I feel like conference talks are often structured like that. Like if you, if you're feeling like dial nine, yeah, there's a randomized list of five principles that will solve always, all your problems. Always those BYU devotionals, like they're just they have a list. Uh-huh. Even the one that I was in, like they were like one, two. It's always, three, a, four. It's always a slightly forced like alliteration. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. just remember yeah. <laughs> three L's. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be great all you need to do is this but no like no life is hard and and sometimes it's so dark um and sometimes you don't feel like you belong and again i don't have a list of what you can do for that but um i know that heavenly father does and that jesus christ does so my advice would just be to ask him thanks for listening to you in my podcast take us as we are we'll talk to you next time